out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Bow Weevils. All the way from Sheffield, who I spoke to very recently. Well, one of the members, Steve McKevitt, to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. So after quite a lengthy chat to begin with, it's showbiz um, to get to know each other. Because frankly, Mr. Shankly, we never did know we even existed before the interview. Uh, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. And... Um, from then on, we just go with it. Anyway, Steve, tell us about all those, yes, the early journey on your musical career. It's over to well, you. Well, I'm about the same age as you, uh, uh, I think. I was born in 66. Um, and um, I suppose, well, the first record I bought with my own money was uh, was uh, Gary Glitter's I Love You Love uh, uh, Me Love, which obviously you don't hear much on the radio these days, do you? No, uh, why? Five. Yeah, yeah. Who'd have thought it? You know. Um, yes. but, um So, so I was. It was kind of the, the early things were. I, I watched Top of the Pops as a kid. Um, my parents were. They're not that much older than me. My mum's only eighteen years older than I am. But uh, they got married quite young. But they weren't. They kind of liked music, but there was no. Um, the, 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 there wasn't a lot of music in the house. I remember us getting a record player. And they used to buy those Top of the Pops. Mum used to get those Top of the Pops albums, which were dreadful. You know? Yes. Even, even at the age of seven, I knew that there was, a, there was a lack of authenticity to them that I just didn't like. You know? Well, that's impressive because I got duped because there was one called um, Top of the Poppers Sing the Carpenters. And I didn't realise that. So for years I'd been listening to this and then realised it wasn't the Carpenters. But I still love the album and I still love the Carpenters, you know, that was one of those ones, but they really duped me. But those compilations where you had a slightly sexy woman on the front, I, no, I don't think we ever got those ones, but Top of the Poppers Sing the Carpenters was, a, was one of the classics of our time in the house. Well, we used to have a stack of them. And then um, my mum my, my and dad are, the, are the, respectively the youngest in sort of big Catholic families from Liverpool. So, um, so I used to get, uh, when we got a record player, my older cousins, they used to give us records. So I ended up with, my, my, my cousin gave me a load, added a load of 1960s singles. And there were things like, uh, you know, the Kinks in there and um, uh, 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 Manfred Mann, um, even It's Good News Week by, uh, by Jonathan King. What happened to him? Don't hear much of him on the radio either, do we? No. But there was so, a lot of 60s stuff. I like the Beatles. Um, my mum and dad met at the cavern, uh, which was, uh, you, you know, uh, so um, so I liked the Beatles and that kind of thing, you know, but um, but it wasn't a, I liked music, but it was only really when I got to about, I suppose about, about 11 years old, really, that I had an epiphany. Um, uh, I went to my, my, uh, my, my auntie, she had seven kids and lived next door to my nan. I used to go down to my nan's on a, uh, my nana's on a, on a Friday night um, and th they'd let me go next door. So I'd go into my cousin Ian's room and play his records. And he had all, he had all kinds. So, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin, um, Neil Young, uh, you know, loads of, loads, of, loads of sort of 70s and 80s stuff, Bowie, that kind of thing. 
So I, 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 used, to, I, I used to listen to all that. Um, I mean, that was very cool. Because bizarrely, my parents were very young when they got married and they, um, yeah, they, and when they, you know, it was that kind of working class thing that they, I think just, they, they were that generation who never had debt. So they would just work to buy something. So I think when they got married, they, they sort of literally sell, sold, sold the sort of records, anything they owned to sort of get this bungalow together. And then it was kind of the 70s where we suddenly got a record player and these kind of some dreadful sort of albums appeared in the house, like uh, the great war themes. And also my dad was really into country and Western, but the sort that was Boxcar Willie, I'm not sure about Tammy Wynette, she was probably all right, but I found it quite hard going. But my brother was seven years old and he was in the, the prog rock kind of stuff. So that was when I sort of became a bit obsessed with gatefold sleeves and Roger Dean covers. Yeah, this, that was, my, my cousin Ian was really into prog rock. I mean, it, stuff like Floyd and Yes and, um, uh, you know, Genesis. I mean, I, I, I really loved all that stuff. And it didn't sound like anything I'd heard before. You yes. know, the first thing he played me, he played me Cut Pie by Led Zeppelin. And I just, I thought, what the hell's this? You know, I'd, I'd listened to Top of the Pops and thought that was music. And then suddenly there was this this kind of door opened, you know, uh, and then um, he let me wish you were here. Uh, that, that, you know, and again, you know, there was no singing on that. That was a, that was an eye opener yeah. or an ear opener. I know. Well, I remember sort of the, there was an, one of the albums my parent, my brother got was um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And it had this, I think there was a track called Funeral for a Friend. And that just goes on in this piano, you know, it's kind of quite a strong song, quite a beat to it and, and the drive. But again, you know, you're just waiting for something to happen. And, you know, I loved, by the way, you know, Gary Glitter. I thought I wanted being Gary's gang. I thought he was just brilliant. I thought, you know, I love you, yeah. love me, love too. It was just brilliant. Luckily, David Bowie is my first single. Thank God for that. So that was that was quite a handy one. But yes, Gary, if I'd been a bit older and could afford 70p, I'd have probably bought one of his singles, actually. I thought he was... But it was the thing was, I mean, back then, those bands were very much part of the counterculture, you know, um, I mean, you know, the 1970s version of the internet, my dad knew nothing about Led Zeppelin. He couldn't tell me anything about them. So I'd heard this band that my, that my cousin had played me and just there was no information about them. You know, you, you couldn't find anything out. You couldn't find anything out. They were, they were a mystery. And then I sent him off because he worked in Liverpool with my pocket money I saved up. I asked him to get an LP for me. And um, I didn't know what it was called. I, I'd see it was physical graffiti that my cousin had played right. to me, but, but that um, I'm dyslexic. So I, I find re remembering names and things like that quite difficult. So I sent him off to get and, and describe the sleeve to him. And he came back with the wrong album, uh, but actually turned out to be the right one because he came up with Led Zeppelin 4. He said, oh, the bloke in the shop said, uh, you'll like this. And I thought, I thought that was amazing as well. So I'd have been about 11 at that time. Um, it just and it just sounded, you know, all, it all sounded brilliant. Uh, well, it was quite an eclectic album because you had Sandy Denny and you had something about a mountain misty hop, and then you had obviously the the classic kind of uh, Stay Away to Heaven. Um, yeah, it, it was that was the one um, Led Zeppelin album I bought because I thought, you know, I wanted because again, you know, if you wanted to hear a song and they they didn't do singles. You had to buy the album, and and it was just very evocative, and and it was just quite an, yeah, it was an amazing album actually. You, you, you did, and you um, and, and information was really, uh, I mean, it was social currency back then. I mean, you know, there wasn't, you know, there was no sort of, uh, there's no real men's, you know, boys' fashions or whatever. I mean, if if you saw someone, 
you know, the late 70s or early 80s who had a really good look, then you, you knew that they'd have had to put an awful lot of effort into putting that together, you know, yeah. uh, you know traipsing around shops and secondhand shops or, uh, you know, looking for the good stuff. Um, I used to read in Smash Hits, you know, about people, you, you know, the stars shopping in, uh, in Oxfam shops. I used to wonder what that Oxfam shop was that the stars went to, because the one that, <laughs> The one in the small town near us was just full of, of rubbish, you know. <laughs> but it's also interesting because I did an interview with a band from Glasgow, um, Friends Game, and they were just saying actually one of the mo most important things was walking around with um, a record under your sleeve because at least then you'd be able to sort of go, oh, look, they're, they're also into that band as well. I'll go and have a chat with them as a sort of form of currency. You know, it was like, a, a, I don't know, like a dating card or something like that. You know, that it was, yeah, yeah, it was an outwards. Yeah, I mean, I remember taking, um, I borrowed, um, uh, I, I borrowed Wah's album, Narpu, The Art of Bluff, uh, from a mate. And um, I, I, I didn't take it on the bus in a record bag. I wanted people to see that I, I had that, you know. <laughs> Yes, we've all done it. Uh, yeah. So it's <laughs> about credibility, yeah. I know, that was all good. So you, because I was too young for punk completely, and also my brother hated any idea of punk rock because it wasn't proper music at that stage. I was also into the, the solo work of Rick Wakeman in the 70s, so something like God Save the Queen was just always going to pass me by. So it was kind of the 80s for me. But you were, yeah, you were a little, little bit younger. So... Did you have a kind of a moment in, in the sort of 80s where suddenly, you know, the world that is John Peel and the enemy and all that kind of environment sort of bit you on the end? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a, so um, I, I, I think, you know, I remember watching the tube. So I, I, I watched the tube and then initially I used to get sounds, but then I, I didn't like that. I got out of, of heavy metal and, and um, well, I was never really into heavy metal, but out of prog rock, really. And um, I, I like things like... Uh, uh, Joy Division and the Gang of Four. Um, I had a, I couldn't get um, John Peel because the reception was too bad at night. So I used to listen to um, I used to listen to um, Janice Long earlier in the evening. Annie yeah. Annie Nightingale at the weekends, and then Con McConville had a program on Radio Merseyside. So I used to listen to stuff there um, and got into a lot of those the Liverpool music. But it was really the Tube and Melody Maker. Um, I used to watch the Tube and read Melody Maker and think that is a world that I want to be a part of. Uh, that's what I want to get into. But 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 how how do you get into that? You know, it looked amazing, but that that's where I wanted to be. Um, but um, I, I really didn't know how to get in. But then you know, with that whole Liverpool world, you had Eric's, you had the Bill Drummond, Julian Cope, you know. I mean, it seems, you know, and Cherry Red Records just brought out that sort of five CD box set. I mean, I'm, I'm from East Anglia, Norwich. We had three bands. We had like the Farmer's Boys, Higson's, the Serious Drinking. I mean, not amazing environment, but you grew up in Liverpool. I mean, that's not even counting the 60s stuff. I mean, what was happening in the late 70s with Jane Casey and all that world of Eric's did sound incredibly creative. So I was slightly too young for that, but... Um, but um, the, the, the thing is, um, I, I grew up just outside Liverpool, so mum and dad moved uh, to a place called Bursco. I was born in Bootle, but we, we moved to Bursco, and it's it's a part of the world where the accent changes really, uh, really quickly. So, um, so, so when you went into Liverpool, people could tell you weren't from Liverpool, um, and it wasn't a particularly friendly place to outsiders. Uh, gigs in the 1980s were quite, you know, they were quite sort of hostile environments, really. They weren't a... Um, you know, you know, there was an edge to him if you went there. So it was, 
I was sort of in, sort of 16 by the time I started going to gigs regularly. You know, it was um, so the first band, the first two bands I saw, I saw Wah and Aslad uh, on the same bill uh, playing in Liverpool at a, a kind of miners' benefit concert. My God, really... that is so street cred. Aswad as well. I mean, we all loved the Roots reggae period of the 80s with Vernon Spear and Misty and Roots. So yeah, my best mate growing up was from Trinidad. So he was really, I mean, it kind of passed me by at the time, you know, but um, he, he, he was really into John Peel as well. So I, I went with him, but they were doing the sort of drum and the bass line. It was that period of Aswad. I mean, they were, they were brilliant, you know. Were, I mean, I'd gone there to see Wah, but, but looking, looking back on it, Aswad were... Stole the show, really. Yes. Had they got the big single, Don't Turn Round, by then? No, they hadn't. No, it was before that. They were still sort of an underground... Uh, you know, there'd been a few albums in, but they'd not had a hit or anything. They were very much, uh, you know, a court band still. Yes, they were very cool. I always remember John Peel loved the live album, Live and Direct. And it's it's worth listening to, because, you know... Because he repeat. Yes, I, w- I wouldn't do it justice, but I just remember John Peel smiling, and I went and bought the record, and smiled as well the way he sort of introduces that song which is quite sweet yeah I mean that university circuit and putting on Sly and Robbie and all those kind of roots reggae gigs from Dennis Bryan to Gregory Isaacs were quite amazing especially because the amount of dope that was in the air and also parents would take small children and stand in front of the bass bin I always remember thinking that kid's gonna be so deaf by the end (laughs) you know it was just like weird taking kids to reggae kick concerts not only would they be stoned i suppose they'd sleep that night they'd also be quite deaf in later life but um hey ho there you go that's the choice for you, isn't it yeah 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 i mean i suppose back in those days i relied much more on them um, i relied more on the music press you'd I'd read about bands and then they'd they'd sound like I, I, there's no way of hearing them but you know they'd sound like something i'd really like so that it would then be i'd go into liverpool and then spend the whole day start off in the Virgin Megastore, then Penny Lane Records, then Probe Records, and maybe come back with one seven-inch single of you know. I remember getting the James single. I'd not heard of, I'd not heard James, but I knew they were on Factory. And I love <laughs> Factory Records, and, and I read about them, and they sounded really good. And, and I got it home and loved it. You know, it was a it, what a relief. You know, not the same. The same thing didn't happen with the Stockholm Monsters. I got that home, had a great cover. It was rubbish. You know, oh, but um, yeah. you're always mean... taking a chance. Well, I was I was the enemy, and the single of the week was often rubbish, you know, because the journalists just would, thought it would be clever, and I just I made that mistake far too many times. So, look, as the eighties progressed, when did you start playing? When did the bass appear in your life? It, well, it was quite late, actually. I mean, my, you know, there was no chance of me getting uh, any of that when I was um, when I was at school. My mum and dad wouldn't have, uh, my dad wouldn't have bought me one or, or let me buy one, and um, I always wanted to be in a band. Um, and, and kind of felt that time was ticking on. So um, I went to I went to university and um, uh, saw uh, the thing that really uh, uh, thought right. I'm going to do this was I went to see the um, the G Mary, Mary chain and the shop assistants in Fantastic. 1986. And well, the where shop was this? It was at the Low Refectory in Sheffield. Uh, um, it was, I mean, it was one of the best gigs I've ever been to. I mean, they played for 29 minutes, the Mary Chain, but at the time, the rumour was how long are they going to they're gonna be on for? You know, and it cost four quid, this ticket. But my mate was saying, well, you know, you'd pay, you'd pay almost double that to see Dire Straits for two and a half hours and they'd be rubbish. Yeah. So it was this kind of, we'd gone to the Mary Chain and then um, the shop assistants came up and I remember watching them and thought, that sounds amazing and I think I could do that. 
Um, <laughs> girl playing the bass guitar didn't seem to be, uh, it didn't seem to be that complicated. So um, that Easter, I went home, got a job on the building site and um, bought, myself a, uh, bought myself a bass guitar and an amp. Uh, and, and then uh, six weeks after that, I'd played my, my first gig with some mates uh, from, uh, at university who had a, who'd been putting a band together and were looking for a bass player. And they, they, they'd not heard that I could play the bass, but they knew I had one. So, uh, so, so that was enough. And the guitarist just told me where to put my fingers and then I, I was away, you know. Well, I think with the 80s, there's a lot of bands who did start in a very sort of um, random way, didn't they? I mean, there was, you know, like the Fuzzbox. I think Jumbawamba said, put their hand up and said, yeah, we can play that gig. And it's like, we're not even in a band. What are we doing? We've got four weeks to get it together. And some bands, you know, just did have that kind of, oh, well, we'll just mess about on the stage and probably that'll be the end of it. But obviously, you know, do you capture a moment? And the 80s seemed to have had a lot of those bands because John Peel was obsessed with, not obsessed, but, you know, he played in a bog shed and stump and big flames. So they were those kind of scratchy, quite scratchy and difficult, difficult bands where, you know, you always got the impression there was probably one good musician and the others were just hanging in there to make the noise and thinking, yeah. Don't ask us to do a cover. We can't do a cover to save our lives, but we can make a bit of a racket. So I think that's why most of those bands, you know, you wouldn't do Johnny Be Good because they thought, God, we can't, we're not that good. We can do Johnny Be Good to save our lives. So, um, yes, there you go. Because, so when did, so were you a university band, by the way? No, well, well, what happened was, so at university, I was, uh, I, I managed to get a, to get a gig as the, the, the music editor of the student newspaper. So um, I interviewed a lot of bands. Uh, free and, CD and, or free records? Free records, lots of free records, which was good. And getting it in to see uh, bands free. And I was a, a real blagger back then. So I got into um, I got into all the ICA C86 Rock Week. I just turned up and said, oh, I've come to pick my press tickets up and shipped my student journalist card. And they gave me these, uh, these tickets. So I saw Primal Scream and the wedding present and the shop assistants down there. But... Um, but to be honest with you, and I'm quite ashamed to say it, what I wanted was I wanted to go and work in a record company, right? Um, and thought that the best way to do that would be to start a band up and get signed. Now, I know that's a bit like thinking, I want to be a golf caddy, so I'm going to become a professional golfer. But that is, that is genuinely what, our, what my plan was. Um, so um, the first band I set up, uh, I, I got together, um, sort of did did reasonably well I mean our singer was a girl called Juliet Russell who is now uh she's the voice coach on the on the voice um and has worked with people like Paloma Faith and um Damon Albarn and uh, um you know I see what she pops up on tv all the time bloody um, hell that's amazing yeah so she was really good um so and we um we we played about four, we were together for about six months we called the big push um and we recorded a demo and there was genuinely a, a bit of interest in the demo. And this was kind of getting right to the end of when I was leaving university. But um, it was, you know, musical differences. Um, the guitarist wanted to sing. Um, so he kind of left to form his own band. Uh, Juliet lived in Liverpool and I was in Sheffield. So she went off to do her own thing. And um, I got a phone call from Red Rhino and they were, they said, oh, you know, we really like this, do you, you know, you want some money to, you know, uh, they talked about a distribution deal. So, uh, so, so that, I didn't know what that meant, but that sounded quite good. And then Native Records got in touch and said, we really like this. 
um, have you got any more? Um, and of course, I didn't have any more. So, so this is how. So, what happened was um, it was a band that shared our practice room called the Reptiles, and their singer was really good. Uh, uh, to get Sarah Griffiths. Um, so I contacted her and said, "Oh, I've got this record label interested because they just split up. Um, do, do you want to record some songs? And and, and you know, we'll get a. I think we'll get a record deal." Um, uh, neither of us could, I was a bass player and she was a singer, so we needed someone to write songs. And I remember the guy I was at university with, who'd borrowed my bass, who'd written some songs, and some of them sounded quite good. He, used to, he had a four track and he recorded them on his own uh, with a drum machine. So I, I contacted him, told him basically what I told you, and the three of us got together and um, uh, recorded a, a demo and, and sent it off to Native and waited for the record deal to arrive. Yes, and that's Kevin, isn't it, at Native, I think? Kevin Donahue, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, amazingly, that plan didn't work, you know. Um, so, we, yeah, so, so so close. So he he wasn't, to, but but at that point, there was the three of us together, and we were, we were doing the songs that Mark had written. So we were kind of like a covers band. Um, but... You know, it's it was sounding quite good, so we thought, well, you know, let's let, let's write some songs and give it a go. So, so that was how the Bowl Weevils came together. Really, uh, it, you know, um, it was a response to an opportunity that didn't exist. Yes, but uh, but sort of the idea. I mean, because at that stage, because because we'd had that kind of golden period of indie pop, which was like okay, eighty three to eighty seven, which are the years of the Smiths. And then, you know, the party changes a bit, doesn't it? Because they split up. It feels like, and as I always say, you know, like the 16 to 18-year-old has kind of got a bit older and then the new generation comes in and they want their kind of sound and ecstasy suddenly appears and people want to hear kind of more ravey stuff before then Seattle sort of comes in. So did you, were you sort of looking at the music scene at the time thinking, crikey, where do we fit in here? But the sun disappeared. Um, yeah, so the Sundays appeared, but we'd had, so um, so it was, I was really, uh, I thought having a girl sing, a female singer would be would, would be really good, because the, there weren't many at the moment, and Sarah had a, had a brilliant voice. She and has Mark, gone, yes. Yeah, she has, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah, yes. but um, but so so she sounded, uh, you know, she had an amazing voice, and Mark was, um, he was really into uh, Huskadoo, R.E.M., Rain Parade, that kind of American uh, rock. And then I had, I, I liked, um, you know, the, the Jazz Butcher and Spaceman 3 and the Smiths and Creation Records and so on. Um, and then it kind of, I think it took us a while to get, uh, to get going. And the first song we wrote was, uh, as, together, was, um, was a song called Turn Your Head. Uh, and suddenly, that, that I, I felt when we were in there and we listened to that, that that sounded that sounded like something that I'd buy and would get quite excited about. Yes. Um, and and then when we send that demo out, the response was was really positive. Uh, we were going to release it as a single ourselves, but um, lots of people were interested in that, and and lots uh, you know I, I had lots of conversations with record companies that seemed like they were going somewhere. I mean, the problem is, is that I was managing the band and I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, I was 21. The only contact I'd had with older, older people, they were, they were either friends of my parents or in positions of responsibility, like my teachers. 
and, and I, I kind of, I was in this world where I, I was dealing with people who are older and much more experienced than me and not really knowing how to behave or, or what to do or, or, or anything about how the world worked and, and was taking everything on face value. So yes. I went to see Native Records. They talked about, oh, if you've got any more songs like this, we could do an album. And then I had a really long conversation with a record label called Reflex, um, who were based in Gloucester. Uh, and, and they talked to us, they, they, were, they really wanted to work with us. Uh, looking back on it now, I just think they probably didn't have the money. And we're trying to get a deal from one of the majors uh, that would give them the money to sign us and, and put a record out, you know. So there were all these sort of near misses going on, but we were up in Sheffield and not really, you know, not, we were, if we, we had a gig outside, we'd end up playing to a dozen people. Um, so uh, it, it, there wasn't that much enthusiasm to go down to London and, uh, <laughs> and play to an empty room. Yes, it's quite, it's quite a tricky time. Cause I suppose, I know that I remember listening to one of the members of Jefferson Airplane. Yes, and he said that, you know, they really wanted to have a band with a woman singer because it it would just be too it would be too similar to every band that he knew in the 60s so you know they got Grace Slick and obviously it gave him that kind of I suppose um yeah unique what the unique selling point USP. But I think so yeah I mean I mean nobody sounded like us and we didn't really play we didn't play with that many bands who had a who had a female singer um you know, and so we were, Sarah was, was quite a bit younger than us. So I'd left university and she was still at sixth form. So she was, she would have been 16, 17 when we got the band together. Uh, me and Mark were in our sort of early twenties. Um, and we kind of, you know, we had a, we, we had a drummer as well, Chris. Uh, so we were a four piece by that stage. But, um, but it was, you know, it, it was, you, I was, you kind of didn't really know what to do other than record demos and send them off and see what happened. I went down to London to see some record labels, and, and I, I was amazed that I, I, you know that, that you know I get I get in. I, I had a meeting with CBS, and the guy took me for lunch, and I was absolutely terrified because I thought obviously he's going to split the bill. So um, he was <laughs> he was saying, "What do you want?" And I was saying, "Oh, well, I'm fine with this water and this green salad." <laughs> you know, having I mean, no idea that he was going to pay for it at the end. You know, um, and yeah. it was it was all a bit. It was all a bit bewildering uh, 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 going down there. And I suppose it was a learning experience, but, but it all, you know, occasionally the lead mill in Sheffield, the guy, the promoter there, Graham Wrench, he, he got behind us and gave us some help and put a showcase on for us. But, but it, it didn't go very well. I, I broke a bass string uh, in the first song. So, you, you know, just, it, you know, things that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, so, so nobody sort of signed us after that. And, and we were sort of bumbling along really, um, uh, uh, wondering what to do next. And then, um, and then one morning I'd, um, I'd sent another batch of demos off because, you know, it didn't look like it was going anywhere with Reflex or, or Native. And then um, I was lying in bed uh, watching Going Live on a Saturday morning and um, Wondering what to do with my life, as I was, I was, I was the job I had, temporary job I had was was finishing, and I was thinking about what to do. And my my, uh, my uh, flatmate said, "Oh, there's a French guy on the phone wants to talk to you." Um, and I went downstairs, and um, it, I mean, a lot of things have happened to me in my life since that have been great, but it was the best moment of my life because it was, um, it was the French guy was was Alain Delamata, who was the, who, who who owned Decoy Records, 
and he was very excited on the phone. He said, "Look, we've got your tape. You know, your demo. We're playing it now. We think it's amazing. Uh, can you come down? Uh, we want we want to sign you, and we want to um, you know we want to put a record out." Um, and I remember putting the phone down and just thinking, you know, fucking hell, that's everything I've ever wanted has just happened now in that phone call. And then and ran all the way to uh, to, to Mark's house uh, uh, to tell him, you know, what happened. And I remember it was. You know, we, we just ended up going to the pub and getting pissed. And at that time, it was like the it was like the bus home at five thirty on a Friday night. You know, it's the best time of the weekend where all the possibilities are there in front of you. And and, and we just thought it was, you know, you know, that's it. You know, that's all we've ever wanted—a record deal. All our problems will be solved now. It's all gravy from here on in. You know. <laughs> And it's quite an interesting label, isn't it? Because you have got, you are on that label with people like Mega City 4 and also, um, yes, the senseless things and all the way from Ireland, the Woodbees, who also had a female singer, didn't, didn't, didn't they? Called, um, they did that. Yeah, they did. Um, yeah, I mean, sorry. I was going to say, and they did the single I'm Hardly Ever Wrong, which I know John Peel was quite obsessed with, actually, because I remember him sort of playing it and having sessions with them. So um, it was quite a cool label. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, it was really good. We went down to. Um, we played with the the Woodbees. We played with Mega City Four. But it was. Um, it was a really nice label as well. Um, I mean, Alan and it was above a record shop called Varna Solution, in in London. And then they signed us for four albums. I mean, they didn't. Um, they, they weren't messing about. So they gave us a. You know, they gave us a deal for four albums. And. Um, uh, you know, I, I went down there and met and met Danny. Uh, uh, in in the office just before Christmas, they gave me a load of free records because uh, I, I went down with the signed contract. We signed with them on the first of January, nineteen ninety. Uh, uh, so um, we've been together for about about fourteen months. It wasn't that long. Uh, it, we've been together till we got signed, and then um, before the, the we recorded a single for about two hundred and fifty quid, but, but took a lot of bad decisions. Decided we didn't want to work with the producer. We were going to produce it ourselves. I mean, you know, what did we know? Uh, you know, yeah. so you know, so I went back into the studio that we'd done the demos and and knocked this single out. And then the only regret that I've got really is we should have put "Turn Your Head Out." It was by far the best song that we had at that time. And I said, "Oh no, let's not do that. Let's put uh, let's put Talk to Me Out. Let's put a different, a not so good song out, uh, and then follow it up with Turn Your Head." That seemed like a superb plan to me, <laughs> uh, you know, an, an, another fucking catastrophe. But um, but anyway, we recorded uh, an EP. They gave us the money to do an EP. And I got a letter from Wiz uh, from Mega City 4 saying he'd heard it in the office, thought it was brilliant. Um, did we want to go on tour with them? Um, you, you know, and, and lots of people were really... Um, uh, you know, we're really helpful about it. Uh, you know, there was a, it was it was a nice label to be a part of then, and then mm -hmm. and, it, and it did feel like it did feel like things were were kind of moving on. John Peel played it. He didn't offer us a session, but he played the B side of the single a few times, and um, and then we, we did we did a lot of touring. Um, played with Kitchens of Distinction a lot. They were they were really nice to us. They liked us, and um, and they I, were I on one they, they were on one little Indian, weren't they at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got on. We, we we played with them in Sheffield and got on with them really well. Um, and they really liked us, and they were and um, they were really helpful. And again, I remember Dan Drummer writing to me. He rang me up and said, "Oh, you know, 
we're going on tour. Do you want to do you want to support us? So so we've had a kind of lot of help along the way, and um, and some and, and you know not single of the week, but good reviews and and good live reviews in in the NME and Melody Maker. Steve Lamack interviewed us for the NME, so it was all building quite nicely. I mean, what could go wrong? You know, uh, you know. So uh, so so we got to. I would say that the end of that phase was it was just the World Cup in 1990 was just starting and the last gig that we played on that phase was um was uh was at Yulu with Mega City 4 and Ned's Atomic Dustbin so it was the biggest gig we'd played we were bottom of the bill but it was it was packed and um the record company came and Alan said Virgin have been here they want to sign you what you know but but um we're not selling you you know we're really going places so it was all it was all quite upbeat yeah. and we had a meeting the next day and they asked, who do you want to produce the next single? And um, we'd thought about who we'd like. And we, uh, we said, well, you know, ideally Bob Mould uh, from Huskadoo, you know, he, he was our hero at the time. Uh, we'd like Bob Mould to, uh, to, to produce a single. And then they contacted him. They put us in the studio to do some demos, sent them over to him. And he said, yes, uh, yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, so, uh, so it's all going well, isn't it? It is going uh, well because I can remember I was obsessed with Huskadoo and then his solo work. Yeah. And I remember he he did produce another band who were quite I can't remember, but I was a bit surprised. He did. he did Magma Pop. That's it. Yeah. God, I would have never yeah. thought that. Yeah. So Bob, all the way from Minneapolis, he's he's coming yeah. over. So so basically, so so anyway, it's all going well. Um, and then um, and then the wheels came off uh, uh, almost completely. And um, looking back at it now, what happened is um, is Vinyl Solution had cash flow problems. So um, so we were all ready to go with the next single, and they said, "Well, you know, no, no, we're not we're not ready to go with the next single at all." Bob goes quiet. He's not returning phone calls suddenly, so they they can't get in touch with him and don't know what happens. Uh, don't know why he, why he won't get in touch anymore. Um, so the months are moving on and, um, and, you know, the momentum of the first singles disappeared and, and suddenly, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not going anywhere. I mean, I'm, I'm working an off license, um, you know, uh, and things kind of like ground to a halt. And um, we, we kind of, you know, there was just a load of inertia there and we didn't really know how to move forward. Uh, so, um, is this kind of making sense to you at the moment? Yes, no, it is. And because I, I suppose I was yeah. also thinking you'd sort of survived the bit of the acid house and then there was Nevermind that had come out as well, yeah. which was quite huge. So you must have been thinking, God, we're going to have to get going here because time is... Yeah, we did, yeah. And there was a sense that other people were taking off and we weren't going anywhere. So um, so what happened was um, was uh, our drummer, Chris, uh, he was dating a girl and um, her friend was, uh, was going out with Steve Singleton from... Uh, he was in the ABC and um, Chris had talked to Steve and said, uh, you know, I'm in a band, gave him a, um, gave him a demo. He loved it. And he had a studio in Sheffield um, and he was, he was great, Steve. So we met him and he said, look, I'm, uh, you know, uh, I'd, I'd really like to produce you, you know, so, uh, um, and I, you know, I loved ABC. So we spoke to, we spoke to the record label. They got back in touch with us and said basically they dropped all the they dropped all the bands uh, uh, on the label apart from us, the Woodbees, and a band from Leeds called Ed's Auctioneer. So Mega City Forward gone, 
census things had gone, sink, uh, all, all of those, they'd, they'd really trimmed down. Um, and they came up to Sheffield for a meeting with Steve Singleton, and he found a studio called Fon, which was, um, had been built by Chap in Sheffield. Bjork recorded there later, and the Spice Girls, and, and, and all kinds of people. Mm. Um, and, um, and so they came up to speak to Steve, had a meeting with us, and said, yeah, we're going to do another EP now. Um, the budget for the first EP was 250 quid, and the budget for the second EP was four grand. Um, so they gave us, uh, so they gave us, you know, four thousand quid to work with Steve. He'd worked with Trevor Horn and all, all, all kinds of things. Yeah. And um, and he had um, he had loads of ideas. Uh, so we did we did a week's pre-production in his studio, and then we went into Fon, which was eight hundred pound a day to record uh, 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 this second EP. And um, it, the first problem we were supposed to have two days recording and two mixing, and there were real problems with. The drummer, uh, Chris, not not his fault, but in those days you had to play to a click track, and he couldn't play to a click track. Oh, so, if you would just hold that thought, because 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 yeah. I'm I've broke your sort of um flow there. But but if you ever watch the the wedding present film on George Best, there's suddenly this whole thing with the producer, the click track, the drummer, it doesn't end well. And there's then there's a bizarre kind of notice that comes up in the film, which flashes for five seconds about some legality to do with what the producer thinks and then you're thinking did you just did they just put something up in the film to talk about what the producer thought about that and it's like god that's a bit weird but anyway it's the click track kills kills a lot of people doesn't it well it, it, well it does so um i'd got i mean it taken it was taking ages to get the drums down and i i didn't know there was a problem and then i got home and there was a phone call from the record company and they said um the, the producer's been in touch uh steve's been he said the, the drummer can't he, he, he just can't do it. He can't drum with the. Um, he can't drum along with the click track. They've got all these samples set to go that are triggered by the the drum. And um, he needs to get a session drummer in. Uh, he knows someone who can come in, so they're going to come in tomorrow and drum on the um, and drum on the on on the record. And I said, right. What, what about Chris? And they said, well, you're now going to go around to his house and tell him that he can't play on the uh, on the single. I said, why? And I said, well, it, it'll be much better coming from you. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so I remember having to walk around in the snow. I mean, we'd waited a year to do this. He he was a he was a training to be a doctor, Chris. So he'd taken a year out of medical school and had to go and tell him, um, you know, you know, there's no way there's no, that didn't go well, uh, you know. Um, but it was, you know, you kind of thought, yeah, for the good of the band and everything. Um, but ultimately. We got the we got a drummer in. She was great. The uh, the new drummer. We asked her to join the band, but she was uh, <laughs> you know she, she didn't after Chris had had left. But she didn't want to. Uh, she, she, you know she had other fish to fry really. So um so anyway so we delivered we delivered this uh, this this EP on the uh, a year after the first one on on the the eighth of January and um, the record company didn't like it. Um, they thought uh, we'd had to rush the mixing of it. So it sounds, I mean, it sounds great now. I was listening to it, it actually for the first time in, in about 30 years as a, as a, as a consequence of, of this interview. And it sounds good and there's loads of ideas on there and you can really see what he was trying to do, but it, but it was just rushed at the end because we'd spent so much time on the drums. And I think having spent, you know, they spent four grand on that single, on that EP, didn't like it. 
and then um, that was it uh, uh, for, for a long time. We went to play a gig in London with a new drummer. It didn't go well. Um, and they kind of really lost, really lost faith uh, in us. And then in the June, so, so, so again, you know, this is like, time's marching on now. We're now 18 months from recording that first single. In the June, I got a phone call from him and he said, um, you know, come down to London. So I went down to London, met a guy called Alan Scott. Uh, we're in a studio in North London and he played the tapes, the, the 24, he had, we had the, the, the master tapes and was going, yeah, yeah, I can, the stuff to work with, we can work with stuff here. So um, then went back to the studio in the June, uh, re-recorded the vocals and some of the guitars uh, and, and finished the EP in the, um, finished the EP in, in, the, in the June. Uh, is this the one that has some of the tracks Find Somebody Else taken this well, or is it the one before that, Talk To Me and Hold Me? So, so uh, Talk To Me was the first one, uh, and that was, was the lead track. The second one was Unreasonable, Crawl Round, um, Out Of Time and Worlds Apart. Got you, yes. Yeah. Um, so, they, so, so, um, so, uh, so anyway, so we, so we, we came out with that, with that EP and then um, and, and again, that was a that was a real turning point. Um, I went down to we, we didn't have a drummer. I went to the bakery uh, one evening and um, bumped into this guy who looked really cool. He was a really impressive looking bloke. He had dreadlocks. About the time that wasn't naff. He he just looked he looked pretty good. And um, I got to, he was talking to my mate who worked there, and it transpired that he got a job working at a, a studio in Sheffield called called Red Tape. Um, his, his name was Pete and I got on really well with him and said oh do you know we're looking for a drummer do you know anyone who'd, who'd, who'd be interested in, in drumming and he said well I'm a drummer I, I used to be an MDMA in Leeds and, um, and so we, we met Pete and uh, uh, at the pub and then went went to rehearse with him and, and I would say that that was really when the band got going because he was a, he was a really good drummer um, he had he had a he had a kind of a, a real vision. He was quite a spiky personality. I mean, Mark was a big personality as well, uh, you know. So there was a lot of we didn't always get on, but but musically it really came together. And he was also really driven and knew lots of people in the music industry. So um, so the next thing that happened was um, was a uh, he got a, a management company uh, a management company had contacted him looking for bands. He'd sent them. Um, our single, and they uh, they they came down to meet us in in Manchester, um, um, wanting to sign us. And again, on paper, it all sounded really exciting. It was a it was a guy called uh, Pete. I won't use his last name. Uh, uh, who was the he'd been the tour manager for um, Simple Minds, and his partner was a guy called Bruce, who'd been the he was the accountant for Wet Wet Wet. So. Uh, they told quite a compelling story about how they were going to uh, manage our career and take it forwards. Um, we signed with them. A load of top gear arrived. So a really good bass guitars and amps, uh, you know, re really good equipment. The gigs started getting better. They went down to see the record company. Um, the record company kind of became re-engaged, said, yeah, and manages exactly what they need. And they were based in Glasgow. So the, the, the Magic Pete Williams said, um, you, you, we've got the money to do another single. We've decided to shelve for the EP, that five grand that you've spent on, on that EP, that's going. Uh, we're going to do a new one. 
and um, uh, um, Jim Beatty uh, from Primal Screen is uh, is is up for um, for producing it. And has so, he ever uh, produced anything in his life? Jim Beatty, yeah, he had. Yeah, he'd done Spirea X, which was um, which was a really good uh, chlorine dream he'd done, which was a great sounding record uh, had come out of that time, and it sounded fantastic. And he's also done Velocity Girl and um, oh right, you know, classics, yeah. 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 Because I just because so, um, I, I do remember when um, it was Motorhead, Fast Eddie said that you know they did the first two albums, it was all going well. Then they had a fight with the producer who was really good. Well, Filthy Taylor did, and then Lemmy said, "Look, Fast Eddie, you can do the third album, produce that." And he said, and that was when at last, <laughs> that was when the band broke up, really, because <laughs> um, you know it was like it, you know he he can produce. It wasn't as easy as everyone thought it was going to be, and also he had to try and control these other two members of the band who had sort of it was just taking too many drugs, really. So it was not a good time. So I just wondered if it's that easy to say, "Yes, I can do that." I've seen someone talk. I don't think so. so. I mean, I think there's a difference between a producer and an engineer. So an engineer works the desk. The producer has the ideas. The producer's really about getting, you know, getting the best performance out of you that he can. He should be really like pushing you to try things out. And you know, what about this? What about this? What about this? You know. Yeah. So, um, so it was. So that was quite. So, so that seemed quite good. So we were off up to. Um, so we were then we were off up to um, Glasgow. So as you can see, lots of recording, and th there was lots of reasons to carry on going because it all sounded quite compelling, you know. And you, you think, oh, we're going to get somewhere, but but actually, we're, we're we're doing nothing. We're not doing gigs. We're not releasing records. And it's now getting on for for two years since we had our, our first single out. Um, and, and it looks like we've done. You know, it's a bit like a, 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 it looks like nothing's going on. But beneath the surface, there was all this kind of activity, and then, um, and then, and then the second mistake happened because we went up to uh, Glasgow to record uh, uh, with um, with Jim. It was going really well, and then um, he went to do he nipped out to do an interview with uh, I think it was Lime Lizard um, uh, during during lunch, and then just didn't come back. Um, so um, we, we we had to we had to do a lot of recording without him there. And um, he turned up. He turned up in the pub that night. And um, I mean, he was he was a great guy, Jim. I, I, you know, uh, I, I, I got on really well with him. He'd been arrested. They'd been taking photos in the park, and um, they'd been they'd been arrested. Uh, so he'd been uh, and and, and he, he had quite a temper on him. So he'd been locked up all afternoon <laughs> and was unable to uh, to do the production duties on our on on our single. Um, and um, it sounded good, that record, but um, Mark, our guitarist, um, right at the end, uh, bless him, for, for whatever reason, insisted on singing on it. Um, and threw his rattle out of the pram because, uh, you know, the, the suggestion was they thought the producer notes finished, you know, Jim and, uh, and Brian, who was the engineer, were saying, it sounds really good, it's finished. You know, she's got a great voice, Sarah. And he was, no, I, 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 you know, I, I want to sing on this. So, he sang on it and it just sounds dreadful because what they've tried to do is obviously turn his voice down in the mix, but you've got this really good single and you've got this really good singer. It's the first time you've come back. We've been out of the mix for two years. So, so we've come back with this uh, new single and we're gonna confuse everybody by having some bloke singing in the background. You know, I, I can't listen to that song now. It just sounds so wrong, you know. Which one is that, uh, by the way? That's Mouth. Uh, 
Oh and, and of course, the, um, the the B side, Restrained. That's probably the best song we ever wrote. That was the one that got the airplay and the one that people liked. People yeah. didn't like it. It was the the B side was much better. Because it's, in, it's interesting because those photographs, you know, of, of the well, basically of um, Sarah, really, isn't it? And some blokes behind yeah. her. I mean, she she is quite a. I mean, you know, like Harriet from the Sundays. I mean, she does have a captivating look. I mean, it's the sort of person that you would want to have on the on the mic, really. Yeah, it would be like it was been like the Sundays. It would be like David, the guitarist, saying, "I'm going to sing the next single." You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's you know, it's all water under the bridge now, really. But uh, but you know, it that single came out. The reviews weren't great. Um, you know. Uh, uh, it, it, I think it confused people. Um, and, um, you know, Alan said to me, I, I spent, you know, four grand on um, on your single and it got to number 98 in the charts. And I spent 250 quid on Bizarre Inks playing with knives and it got to number two and sold 100,000 copies. What would you do, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Yes. Yeah, so, th so, then they, um, so then they put us in to do another single uh, in Savat and never released that either. That was missing out. I, 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 so, 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 so that, um, so that's that, that sketch knackered. Um, so we were, um, we were, we, we were then leaving uh, a decoy uh, uh, and, and looking for another deal. And at that point, um, two things happened. First, the, 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 the first thing that happened, which was really positive, was um, we got another guitarist in. He was a mate of mine. He'd been in a band called Circus, Circus, Circus in London. Mark mm. Shaw, brilliant guitarist. Um, he joined Heave uh, after, after he was in the Ball Weevils. He joined and suddenly it all, it, it all started happening again. I mean, we sounded brilliant. We were a five piece. It was really, really good live. Um, and, um, and we were, you know, the songs were really good and the sound was really coming together. The downside was that we weren't a new band at this point. We'd been around for a while and people were looking at us and thinking, you know, kind of what's gone wrong? Why are they so difficult to work with? Um, so um, I also, I, I hooked up with Bob Mould again when he played in, um, when he, he played in Sheffield and I went to meet him and um, he said, uh, he, he had, what had happened is he'd, um, he's, he'd had a, uh, his accountant had run off with all the money and he was suing as an accountant. So he, he, he stopped, he dropped all the projects he was doing. And he told me he was supposed to produce our album and, um, and Nirvana's, and he didn't do either. Well, he, well, he missed out on one of those. And, and, and I'll give you a clue, it wasn't ours. But, um, so, um, <laughs> but he said he was definitely up for working with us again. So, uh, so, so we had Bob back on board now. So that was so that was a good thing, but the downside was our manager uh, 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 Pete, um, who was known in the band as Bunhead because he did he did look like a current bun, and um, he turned out to be like um, he was like the granddad from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, do, you remember, <laughs> do you remember the granddad in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang used to say, uh, "Right, everyone, I'm off to Africa today," and then would walk and stand in the toilet at the bottom of the garden. <laughs> that, that's exactly. That's exactly what our manager used to do. I mean, he used to pretend um, he, he was, he'd say things that were like, he'd have some quite good ideas, like let's get Jim Beatty in, or you should get another guitarist in to big the sound up. But those kind of sprinkles of reason were just, you know, amongst just a raft of, of you know, insane lies that it was impossible to, um, 
it was impossible to check because there's no internet. So, no. Um, you know, he'd almost say, so he'd be, he'd say like, you know, yeah, I was in the Falklands War and I got the Victoria Cross for saving uh, people's lives. You know, were you? You know, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I was. Um, yeah, I, do you know, do, do you know, have you heard of Light of the World? Think I've heard of them. Yeah, I was in them. I played sax. <laughs> did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. You're not mentioned on any album. Well, you know, I wasn't there for the photo shoots either. Right. Okay. And then, uh, you know, and, and he, they, I remember ringing him up and saying, he said, I can't talk now. I'm having uh, a colonoscopy in the middle of hospital. I've got, I've got um, Crohn's disease. Um, so, um, and it was just, um, it, it was just this like sort of, right, this sounds, um, this sounds bonkers, but it's going to get, it gets even worse. So, um, what had happened was I'd got, um, we played with Dodgy, uh, you, you, you've had on Nigel here. We Nigel. played with them and um, their re I'd, I'd spoken to their record label, Ultimate, and I told them that it wasn't going well at, at, um, at Decoy. Uh, they, were, they were happy to drop us. And Ultimate offered us a, uh, a, 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 a 10 grand to go and record an album. And um, we went down to London to sign with them uh, we play a gig and sign with them and they just didn't turn up at the gig and then um, our manager said uh, you know well this happens you know they've just they must have had a meeting and decided to swerve on it and it was only after we'd split up that uh, uh, Mark our lawyer said well I can't understand why you never signed that deal with Ultimates I mean it came through when I, I sorted the contract out with them and then you know, uh, I said, you know, what, what contract? We didn't know. And I think what had happened is that Bunhead had thought, oh, right, if I can get 10 grand now, just think of what I could get if I, if I held out. Um, <laughs> so, um, so anyway, um, so, so anyway, um, he'd also, I mean, I wouldn't suggest that he'd, he'd, he'd read a book in his life, uh, you know, but, um, but someone had obviously told him about Peter Grant and the way that he managed Led Zeppelin. And he thought, oh, that's a really good way to be. I I'm going to be like that. So he was quite aggressive as well. And, um, and he used to sort of, he used to work, uh, we used to say he works on a need to don't know basis. So, um, <laughs> so he wouldn't, uh, he would like, a, he would say, he, he would say, I'm speaking to record, I've got a meeting with the record company tomorrow. I go, who's that? You don't need to know that. You just need to focus on playing the bass guitar and, and working out how, this can be the best band in the world because that's do that's what I do every day I get up you know um so it, so th this kind of like just sort of farrago of uh of, of lies and really strange things uh were going on and then um out of the blue we've been going for so this is now 90 1992 so it's now two two and a half years since the first single had come out um we played, uh, it, it turned out to be the last gig that we'd ever played, the Brilliant Corners in, um, at the Powerhouse in, in London. And um, he said, right, um, we've got the money to go and record an album. Uh, so uh, you're booked into the Windings for three weeks, which is a, a studio in Wales. Um, Bob Mould's going to do the mixes. He's not going to go over and produce it, but he's doing, he's going to do the mixes uh, and he's going to be in, in New York. And then we're going over there and we're going to play. There was some kind of like music industry thing in New York. You're all set up to go and play over there. Now, now obviously, being a bit older, you would have said, how is this happening? Who's paying for it? Where's the money coming from? But by that point, you know, we, we, we all want to believe in Father Christmas, don't we? Um, <laughs> I mean, do you remember when somebody told you Father Christmas didn't exist? A part of you thought, no, no, I'm not going to accept that. 
So you just thought, I've waited so long to get into a studio. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've, I, and Bob Mould's going to produce, he's going to mix it. And I know I've spoken to him, so I know that's that's real. This is definitely happening. Um, so um, so we went into the, <laughs> we went into the studio in Wales um, and the, um, I went over there to, to to have a look round, and the deal was was done on the basis he, he got a good price for it on the basis that we would pay cash up front uh, uh, for the recording. Um, anyway, the cash up front didn't arrive. Um, he borrowed loads of equipment as well from a music store in um, in Glasgow, and um, we went into <laughs> went into record, and then. Um, Halfway through the recording, uh, he turned up with um, somebody who he said um, ran bars in Glasgow. Uh, he was quite a uh, he, he was quite a scary character. This guy who came up, he didn't look like sort of very music industry, uh, uh, you know. Um, and then paid half the money for the studio. Um, he disappeared with this uh, with this this kind of bar owner from Glasgow. But it disappears, um, and then that's the kind of the last time that I ever saw uh, uh, Bunhead, um, or our money, or also our equipment, because the uh, studio <laughs> confiscated it. Um, they let us finish the recording, but um, but but they kept the master tapes and they kept the um, uh, they kept all of of our equipment. Um, it, it, it turned out we spoke to Bruce's partner. He'd kind of just disappeared with uh, 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 leaving a whole sort of raft of debt behind him. And um, and and that, uh, as they say, was that. Uh, we stumbled on for a bit afterwards. Um, but, um, but, you know, the whole thought of having to get someone to pay us to, 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 get, to get the master tapes out, to then go and mix them. You know, it, people want easy, don't they? That just yeah. seemed really really complicated um so, so mean, um, it's a kind of a weird one isn't it these 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 kind of worlds of, of how do you become a record manager you know a, a, a band manager because there's no courses to do it and you sort of have to learn you know in the old days there was kind of all those ones from the 60s like um who i don't know someone just brought out a book called the was it the velvet mafia you know mostly they were sort of lots of kind of gay managers in the 60s and then you had the Peter Grants and then Don Arden's he was also 60s wasn't he so how did this guy I mean what was his track record and and did you ever find out what happened to him after yeah. that yeah there is so um so he had so the only bit that was true was he was um he was Simple Minds tour manager but I think he'd he was he was Paul Kerr Paul Kerr was Simple Minds manager and Jim Kerr's brother. He was his brother-in-law. And I think he got some kind of grace and favour job there, like that. And I mean, I'm, I'm making it sound like he had all the patter. I mean, he didn't. I mean, if you'd met him, you'd have thought he was an idiot, you know. Uh, but, um, but, um, and, then, and a lot of things that he said were absolutely implausible. So, um, so um, I, I mean, there's a, it's quite a sad tale, really. But, but ultimately, what happened to him was... Um, and you can look at this online. He uh, he got um, he went to court. He was charged with fraud. Um, and, um, and 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 if you knew him, this is this is this this sums it up to a T. This story. He got he got um, he got arrested for fraud, and it went to court. And um, he had a load of uh, character references from um, his uh, 
you know, people who said he was in the army, he was a war hero in the Falklands. He'd been in the Navy, sorry. He was a war hero and, um, you know, it, this, is, this was a lapse of reason. He hadn't meant to rip these people off or whatever. And then as a result of that and his good character references, he was, he was sentenced to 12 months in, 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 in prison rather than, um, rather than getting four or five years. Uh, um, but anyway, he, he was really unhappy about that. So he appealed um, against that sentence. Um, when it went to court again, um, it transpired his, his lawyer uh, left him because he said he'd lied. All of these references, the people didn't exist. He'd written them himself. Um, so he got, um, he got seven years for perjury um, uh, and you know, went to prison for quite, uh, quite a long time, you know, so uh, nothing to do with us, but he did. But I think he was, um, I, you know, I think he was a, I, I don't think, I think he was a bit, he was obviously a bit of a fantasist, but he, he, he'd wanted the, um, I think he believed that he could pull this off. I think he had a, a supreme, like a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of those sort of people, a supreme faith in his own, in his own ability to, yes. to pull this off. You know? My God, the boy. Yeah. Because you must have been, you know, looking at the band and hearing, hearing the singles, Britpop was just happening. And my God, I mean, with, with Sarah on vocals, you must have been thinking, you know, looking at Sleeper, Elastica, and then obviously all the other bands that came along on those Shine compilations that we all loved during the 90s. John Major years. Did you not think, Christ, we, you know, we, we were there, you know, we've, we've had a quite a long apprenticeship, fair enough, two years, but you were there ready for, for the moment. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, two things happened. Firstly, um, I, I ended up, I got a really good job uh, out of that. I ended up, I got a job in, um, as a writer for a computer games company, and it was, a, I was having a great time. And so I actually left the band. We went down for a meeting with Fire Records, yeah, um, London. They 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 said they were going to offer us a deal. I mean, it never happened, but it sounded real at the time. But I remember sitting in the office and thinking, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to sit in a van. I don't want to go back and and record more songs. This is not the life that I that I want. So um, so 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 I left I, on the way home. I said, look, that all sounds great. Um, why don't you get a friend of ours, Hugh, to come and play the bass, which is what they did. Um, I, I'm, I, but I'm done. I'm going to do something else. And then what I realised is that, that ultimately um, I much prefer being a consumer of music than I do a producer. Um, I mean, I, I, st I still love music. And what I think about my period in the band was actually when you're in a band, you've got to think that you're the best and you've got to think that everybody else is rubbish. Um, so I loved that Britpop period. Um, and I did think, I mean, you know, you listen to the, I mean, I think the music still stacks up now. I mean, I, you, know, you know, but, um, but, uh, but, but, you know, I, you know, I, but, but yeah, we were, we were kind of just, I think, it, you know, we were caught between two stools. The other thing is as well, that I just don't think that we have the personalities right in the band to go on and, uh, and, and do that. You know, um, I don't think, you know, Mark and Sarah carried on uh, in another band for a while, but I don't think that they really had the, the you know, it, it's more than writing songs. You need the drive and the absolute commitment to the cause. And, you know, I didn't have holiday for six years. Um, you know, you know, all, all those sorts of things, those sacrifices that you've got, you've got to be willing to make for it really. And um, yes. I don't, my heart was in it. Um, there is another, um, there is another interesting coda to that though, because, um, 
in 2008, so uh, the band had split up for, you know, about 14 years. In 2008, um, I got a... I got a, an email from um, a guy who'd um, who'd been involved with the band. He was friends with Mark, the guitarist, and they'd written they'd written some songs together. And he'd he'd wanted to put a website up about the Bowl Weevils and um, asked me if I had any objections to putting music on there, which, which I didn't. And and he told me that um, we'd had an album out in Japan in um, in nineteen in nineteen ninety one, uh, a CD no less. Uh, you know. Uh, so I, I said, you know, you're joking, aren't you? And then, um, no, he had, it, so what had happened is, um, I remembered when he told me that I'd been down at Decoy and, and Alan had talked about this deal uh, in Japan where they would do, they would put an album out on Toy Factory um, and that we'd get 10,000 pounds for that. So I kind of put two and two together and thought, I know what happened there. That deal got done, our manager signed it and that's where Trousered the 10,000 and that's where it's gone. So I had to buy, um, I had to pay $68 for a copy of my own fucking CD 40 <laughs> years after it had come out. You know? Yes, the mysterious. And that's the only the memento that I've got of those times. You know? Bloody hell. Yeah, because I know Vinyl Japan was that other label that seemed to have hoovered up any indie band. It's very, especially yeah, this, was, this was Toy Factory. I mean, I think they're the third or fourth biggest label in Japan then. They were a really big operation, but back then they were just hoovering up um, indie bands. And I mean, yeah, I look back and we had, uh, you know, we, we, we had a decent run at it. Uh, you know, we, I mean, we, you know, we, we played with PJ Harvey, uh, Spiritualized, um, you, you know, we did lots of things that I'm, I'm really glad that we did. And then, you know, I've got no regrets about it. And actually, you know, you know what is what is being successful you know maybe we you know you know maybe we would have got to the level of the kitchens of distinction or or you know uh, or lush or or whatever but you know it, it was it was a it was an interesting experience uh, very frustrating at the time but, but i learned a lot from it and it, it certainly set me up for the you know, for, for what I went on to do with the rest of my life, really. Yes, well, absolutely, because you're one of the people like um, Amelia Fletcher and also the guy from Big Flame, I think his name's Greg, you went on to the world of academia, didn't you? And um, um, were you... Yeah, well, I've done, I've, I've done lots of different things, really. Um, I'm, I'm, I mean, at the moment, I came to academia late, um, so I've only been a... I'm a, I'm a professor at Leeds uh, Business School now. Um, but um, for about uh, for about fifteen until two thousand and twelve, I, I, I kind of worked in um, it, I suppose advertising, advertising design agencies. So uh, uh, I worked at Designers Republic. Uh, I was managing director of Designers Republic for a while, and then I had an agency in Leeds called Golden. We worked with people like Nike and Coca Cola and, and people like that. And then I've, I've written books uh, as a as a as a kind of as a kind of a sideline really so it's been it's been an interesting journey and now yes. I, I kind of do I, I, I do a bit of academia and then I do a bit of work in um, in, in that sort of a corporate world I guess you'd say. Yes well I don't know if you've come across him Scott Galloway he's famous kind of he's a professor of marketing in Harvard and I always listen to his podcasts and stuff like that so there you go he's done. Um, yeah, well, I, I delivered a I delivered an academic paper the uh, the other week, and it's got thirty five uh, uh, views and rising on YouTube. 
you know, um, maybe after this, it'll get to 36. <laughs> but it's fantastic. It's just great. I mean, Amelia Fletcher, she's also a professor and she I think she's got an OBE or I don't know, she's got some of those because of her work in economics. And, you know, she's still making, you know, music that you could imagine she'd made with Tallulah Gosh and then Heavenly and with all these other little bands that she does. I mean, she's basically, it's a bit like um, that film Flashdance. She's lecturer by day musician by night and it's true you know she said that's what she does you know it's her day you know she she does her academic work and then suddenly in the evening she's she gets the guitar and starts writing more songs so it's it's great that you're but you know even though you haven't done music you've still been very creative in what you've done yeah i think so i mean I, you know i like uh i mean i, I really enjoyed i mean I, I read eight books i don't want to write uh any more um they did one of them did really it still does really well in the um it did really well in the usa it was bought by macmillan uh it's called everything now uh a title that was stolen from me by uh, arcade fire five years later but um <laughs> if you if, you, if, if i go if you google my name now there's loads of essays and presentations that kids have had to do in the uh in the states because you can buy uh you can buy an essay about uh about everything now because it's been used in this textbook two chapters with Malcolm Gladwell and people like that are in there, and it, it's got a print one of about hundred thousand copies. This book, and it's a it's a course book for that their equivalent of six formers, so you know eighteen yeah. year old. So um so over there, there's um you know the, the, you know there's there's some guys. <laughs> occasionally, I'll see someone tweeting about me at the University of Alberta uh, because I've had to sit in a lecture on there about. Yes. Um, so about you, you you were sort of was it a hundred thousand hours that Malcolm Gladwell or ten thousand. 10,000 hours. You must have almost clocked those up. I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I think, I, I, yeah, I, what, what in, what in, um, in music? What, in music? Yeah. I don't know. I think so. I mean, I never thought, um, I mean, I knew what you needed to do to be, you know, I knew you needed a great singer and you needed a good guitarist. So the musicians around me were really good. I mean, I was all right on the bass. I was good enough. I wasn't going to get told I couldn't play on the uh, on the album. But um, I mean, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful to sort of Peter Hook or, or John Paul Jones or, or Sir Paul McCartney, but um, it's really not an awful lot to play on the bass guitar. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and, and I didn't, I, I actually found dealing with the manager and the, the record company more interesting so I, I was kind of drawn to that world anyway I mean, that's an awful thing to say isn't it I mean, some of the people on here think that was a reprehensible uh, thing for no, an i mean i mean i suppose it's it's the characters i mean when you look back i suppose it's what happens you know with with the with the kind of the journey of it really i mean it's yeah it's it's a it's a it's an amazing story i mean do you um the other members and most of them went into other bands i mean do you sort of occasionally drop each other a line and say uh, no, and um, Pete, uh, the drummer, um, he's one of my best friends. Pete Darnborough, the drummer, he's he's one of my best friends. Um, I don't see him as much as I as I'd like to. Um, he lives in Glasgow now. He he he's still managing bands. He managed Pimp Boom for for a while. And um, Ben Howard, uh, he's 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 managed a lot of he's managed a lot of people. He's he's the same age as me, Pete now. Uh, but he he works. He teaches. Um, he teaches at a, a college up there, music uh, music industry studies. Um, uh, Mark and Sarah's, she's in a band, I think. I'm not sure what they're they're called, but I don't really see her. I haven't seen her or Mark for years, uh, yeah. really. 
Um, I mean, it's interesting because, um, I mean, there's a lot of kind of people putting out these compilations at the moment. You've got that, there's a record label in London, uh, in Germany called Fire Station. And then there's that little label in Preston called Optic Nerve who love to put out singles. But I'm amazed that nobody's said, actually, could we, you know, get your material and just put out a compilation? Cherry Red Records. Did you, has that ever sort of crossed your mind, you know, on the world? Because because as you heard before, you know, um, 25 years seems to be a great passing of time where people go, I'll just, I'm not bothered and anything. Oh, actually I might archive that before I throw it in the bin because it's kind of quite nice to have some sort of... Yeah. I mean, I'd like to put it up on, um, I'd like to, uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I can't really go into details here, but something happened a few years ago that made me think, I, I would have put it up on Apple, the stuff that we've got and just seen what happened. But, um, but I, I, something happened to me a few years ago. I'll tell you after this is uh, recorded what it was that makes me think that's not that might not be a good idea. But about ten years ago, when Ray put that website up uh, with the bowl wheels, he got he, he got approached by a, a, a record label in Peru who wanted to do a, a box set. Um, but but like all things that happen with the bowl weevils, that never actually uh, that ne <laughs> never actually came to pass, you know. And um, I still see I still see Steve Singleton. Uh, he lives uh, not far from me, so I still bump into him now and again. He's a, he's a really nice nice guy, um, and um, I, do, I don't see the infamous Bunhead anymore. Uh, I, I, I presume he's out. Uh, he, he, he's out of prison now, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I wish him well, whatever he's doing. Um, but but yeah, it's a. Uh, I suppose yeah, yeah time marches on. You think somebody might be? I, th I think somebody would be interested. I mean, it, it it still sounded. I was surprised at how fresh it sounded when I was. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, production-wise, it was like, oh yeah, definitely. This is definitely great. This is good stuff. And then obviously you look at Spotify and it's not there, and you think, shit, wish it was. It would make life so much easier, wouldn't it? Maybe. Yeah. Can you? Is, is that something you can do? Can you? I don't, well, I don't know. I won't. Maybe that's. Uh, I don't need a lesson in it. Uh, I suppose the listeners don't need a lesson now to put stuff on Spotify, but... Um, I just don't know, but I know some people who, you know, in the Norwich kind of acoustic singer-songwriter vibe just suddenly go, oh, my music's on Spotify, and they haven't got a record label, and I, I've never asked them how it, they do it, but it can't be that difficult, and they obviously can, it's, uh, you know, self-produced stuff that just suddenly like, oh, yes, I've, you know, there's my four tracks, have a listen, and, and you think, oh, that must be quite straightforward. I, but, like, you know, it must... I expect if you went and Googled it, it was like, oh yeah, we just have to do this, this and this and push publishing. Well, there's not much there's not much about us on Google. There's a couple of videos on YouTube and I think there's um, you know, there's not there's not an awful lot out there. No. Uh, it's it's screen it's screaming for a cherry red record release, isn't it really? Yeah, yeah. I mean that that'll be that'll be perfect. You know, that'd be perfect. I so to, I mean I, I'm quite happy to, I don't want any money either, you know. So if someone's listening and likes it and wants to put it out, then they've uh, they've got my blessing. Yeah. You know? Well, Optic Nerve Dis have been pulling these kind of amazingly obscure, you know, like flexi records, flexi discs, and si singles. You know, actually just recording it from the you know the actual material and then sort of cleaning it up a bit and then just putting them out with a quite a nice sleeve and saying, "There you go." You know, and, and someone out there will buy it because I think, you know, again, there's the people who remember you the first time and then these people who, like me, when I was young, just want to discover that new band. And I think the 80s indie world, and you obviously in the 90s as well, you know, suddenly gets a bit interesting, you know, people want to hear it. And, and 
yeah. I mean, there's stuff like, uh, like you know, Easter House. Uh, you, you had um, you had someone from Easter House on on one of these. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I mean that, that was a great album, their first album, but that never gets mentioned and it never gets played on the radio. And um, you know, it sounds a lot like the Smiths. You know, it's uh, uh, but um, you know, they're they're a really, they're, they're, I mean, they're a great lost band, uh, Easter House. But um, you know, no one ever really talks about them. No. Um, you know, and there's been a few, there's been a few bands like that, I guess. But um, I know there's some, yeah, that is quite amazing. And and he he was one of those people that some fan who was also a producer got the record, did some interesting thing and remixed it somehow, and then sent it back to him and say, look, this it sounds much better now. And he went, oh, thank you very much. And he sort of, yeah, I can send you a copy of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's it's quite yeah. So there's people out there with the technology to make all this happen. So there you go. Well, so look, an, yeah, sorry, yeah. No, after you. I was going to say there's a lot of um, you know there wasn't that many bands uh, 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 back then, and um, you know you needed you needed a record company to do anything. Um, you know it's not like now, and I think you know you, you know people can think of, of more interesting things to do other than being a band you know uh, you know I looked at that world wanted to be a part of that and thought well that's the only way that I can I can get in there but um but you know when I, when I think back you know you mentioned you talk about the bands from that time there, there aren't many that that there aren't many that I haven't heard of or or, or, or I didn't see because there wasn't actually that many that many bands around back then compared to now I guess yeah, well, I suppose it's that thing that, I mean, now there's like millions of places to hear music in those days. You know, in the 70s, I remember my brother had a book called, you know, Classic Rock Albums, and you couldn't hear the records before buying them or getting them from the record library. So I remember going, oh, look, the Velvet Gold, the Velvet Underground, I must go and try and yeah. get a copy of that. And being a bit amazed when you put it on, it was Sunday morning and then it goes into all those other quite heavy numbers. And, you know, Marvin Gaye's kind of, it was always, you know, what's going on was another classic and Van Morrison's Moon Dance, National Weeks, you know, and you'd sort of work through these. And, and was, it was always a bit strange when you put the needle because, again, you know, now you can have a quick listen, but then you, you could just kind of go, oh, look, the top, the top albums of all time. And then, yeah. And then in the 80s, there was the, you know, the gatekeepers like John Peel, and then, you know, the three music papers and record mirror as well. And then, you know, every city and town had a, an indie night gig, didn't they? So you could you could do that circuit of kind of going from the art centre to Princess Charlotte to the Harlow Square to the, you know, Sheffield Lead Mill and... and but all them. But yeah, yeah you, you were and you, you get on a circuit. But now, I mean, the other thing is that that story that I've just told you would, I mean, you know, my kids would find, I mean, it, it'd be meaningless to them because... Uh, but you know now uh, people just put albums out all the time, don't they? You know, yeah. we've got a band there. We've got, and we're doing it. My, my mate uh, Robin is a he, he's an engineer still. Uh, he he um, and he works. Uh, he said um, you get bands coming in now. And he said you know when it, he did his work experience for us when we record our album in 1993. He said back then it was all about rooms and microphones. And okay, MIDI had come in. But, but things were still very much analog, you know, um, and it was all about trying to get the sound right. There was a real craft to it. He said, now um, everything's done in real time in, um, you know, uh, 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 in the, um, you know, the software. He said, you'll get a, a band in and it'll pull the drums in time, make sure that the, the, the guitar's playing in tune. If there's a bum note in there, the software will run it out. He said, 
And the bands will come in and go, wow, you've made us sound really good. We didn't know we were that good. And he said, you'll be thinking, well, you're not, you know, uh, this <laughs> software it isn't you. And, and, and everything kind of sounds the same. And, um, you know, people, uh, I got invited, my mates uh, contacted me the week. He's, he's done an album. Um, he put that out on, uh, on um, you know, uh, Sunday, Sunday night. He played, he played some kind of concert on, uh, online. Um, so, so, you know, people are doing that now and, and the gatekeepers have gone. We haven't got the music press anymore. Um, you know, there's, you've got six music, but that's listening to people who are our age. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not a um, it's, it's not a thing. I mean, if my kids want to hear Joseph K, they'll just type that into Apple and they'll get everything they ever recorded. For me, I remember the first it took I'd heard of Joseph K and it took me 18 months to find somebody who who had something that I could listen to. You know, it was. Uh, <laughs> I you know. know. It was, it, yeah. I was going to say the idea of sort of unpacking your gear at four in the morning, you know, in a from a transit van, you know, when you'd played a gig in front of a hundred people, it's, you know, you just wouldn't do that anymore. You'd be sticking something on Instagram, wouldn't you? You would be, and I mean, it's you know, it would be, yeah, it it, it would be, it'd be depressing. I mean, I remember going to, I went to see Deer Hunter uh, in in Manchester last year, and um, with 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 my mate and. Um, we went to get something to eat uh, uh, at Wagamama's and, and sat on the next table to us were, uh, were Deer Hunter. So I thought, you know, I, so I said, oh, you know, uh, we're over to see you tonight and had a nice chat with, uh, with Bradford Cox. And, you know, and then he left. And I said to my mate, fucking hell, I bet we've made their day, haven't we? That's what they got into music for. It's a couple of middle-aged blokes. <laughs> they would travel 40 miles to see your show. That's rock and roll for you, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, God. Well, at least you didn't say you used to be in a band. They go, oh my God. Oh, so that's just the worst, isn't it? It's like people. Um, <laughs> it's like people saying that they've written. A, you know, they, they, they've written a book, or they. Uh, or you know, there's a book in me. That's where it really needs to stay. You know? <laughs> yes. So look, what if you could have said something to an 18-year-old self? Then you know, starting out, and you know, you could have just said, look, this is a few. These are a few bullet points you you should just take a bit of notice either do this or don't do that what would you what would you have said or what would you think yeah that was definitely something that I've learned from that experience um I would say uh oh, you know what with knowing what I know now yeah I think I'd have to say um you know uh, don't worry about this if it doesn't pan out the way that you think it's not the end of the world um well, I thought that it was, and I might always say, I might also say, sorry, Mark, whatever you do, don't let him sing. <laughs> Hilarious. I know. We laughed. Anyway, look, we had to end it there because we then got into some showbiz chat that had to go off record. I love that moment. Anyway, look, a massive uh, thanks to Steve. Um, McKevitt from the Bow Weevils for giving me the time for that interview. Um, yes, you can find out more about the band here and there. I don't know, there isn't a lot really. Um, so that's it really. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do the C86 show. Keep it positive and groovy. And um, also I've been doing all these interviews for years. So you can find those also on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, do C86 show. It's all there. It's free. It's groovy. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.